Well, happy Mother's Day, mothers. We, um, we are thankful for a day to be able to honor you, and I know there are several that um, have gone to church with their mothers this morning, so um, uh, I was, um, was kind of sad because I wasn't going to be able to do that because um, normally I try to go with my mother, but being a pastor, it's a little bit hard sometimes, but my mother came to me this morning, and so happy Mother's Day to me. And so um, I am thankful to, uh, to have my mother here with us this morning. And I do pray that y'all have a wonderful Mother's Day. Can y'all see me in this jungle? <clears throat> do I look pretty, baby? <laughs> hey, hush your mouth. <laughs> All right. Well, today is Mother's Day, and I had somebody come to me a little while ago, and they said, uh, we're going to get to see how good a preacher you really are this morning, see how you tie revelations in with Mother's Day. So here's what I got thinking about. Well, mothers did bring us into the world, and my mother used to tell me all the time, I brought you into this world. <laughs> so, therefore, I thought it's very fitting on Mother's Day to speak of the book of Revelation, where we talk about the end of all things, right? Um, that is where we're going to be this morning. I do apologize to the mothers for not having a special message dedicated solely to your honor but I pray that you'd understand that we also have a purpose in the church, and that's to, uh, to teach and train the Word of God. And um, so we started this series on the book of Revelation uh, two weeks ago, I believe it was, and we did an introduction to it. And if you didn't get that introduction, it would be very, um, it would be very good for you to go back online. We have Facebook, Google Play, we got... Um, uh, iTunes, I believe there's multiple ways for you to find it, the church website, uh, but go back and find that introduction to Revelation because everything we do from here on out will be focused on what that introduction gave us. Ultimately, that introduction gave us specific goals of the book, that this is the reason, chapter 1 just lays it out for us and it gives us at least six goals of this is why Jesus gave us the book of Revelation. That's very important. As I told you a couple weeks ago, the book of Revelation is both the book that the church most desires to hear teach and it is also, or most desires to hear taught, and it is also the book that most pastors and teachers least desire to teach. And so one of the reasons that is because uh, it's, an, it's an apocalyptic book. It's a book of prophecy. And so it's, it can be difficult to translate, to interpretate. And so uh, what we want to be able to do is look at what Jesus said. This is our purpose for writing this book. And then we want to read the book in light of the purpose that He laid out. And I believe if we can do that all the way through, then you are going to be able to come to the, most, um, to the closest interpretation that, that we can get to. So again, if you, if you have not get, uh, heard that introduction, I would pray that you'd go back and give it a listen so that you can stay on track with us. Um, as I said, we established around six goals in this introduction. Today, I want to focus on just two of those goals. Two of those goals. The first goal we said was to reveal Jesus Christ in a way that He has not yet been seen. Uh, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the book starts out that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
That word revelation comes from a Greek word that is called apocalypsis. And it is just a word that means to unveil. It means to unfold. It means to reveal. And so we take it and we convert it to the word revelation. It means that Jesus is saying in this book, I want you to see me in a way that maybe as of yet you have not seen me. And so as we get into our, uh, our first lesson in Revelation, I want you to keep that goal in mind, that we want to see Jesus Christ in a way not yet revealed and not yet seen. What you're going to see this morning is that Jesus is not just the... Um, He's not just the, the, the Savior that's carrying the lamb on his shoulder and that he's, uh, that he's all about grace. Yes, absolutely that's true. That is. We don't want to take away from that. But what you're going to see in the book of Revelation is that Jesus is serious about his people and his church fighting sin. Jesus is serious about us being in the battle with our sin, with our flesh, and with the, the, the evil things of this world. And He addresses all of these things. For instance, in um, Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, look at what He says when He addresses the first church, Ephesus. He says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is the same Jesus that loves you with everything in Him that gave His life for you. But this is also the same Jesus that is serious about us dealing with sin. And He says very plainly here, if you don't heed my warning and you don't listen, you will prove your faith to be not genuine and I will come and I will take your lampstand out. And we know ultimately this represented the church itself. He literally saying, I'm going to take your light out of the community. You will no longer be the light of the world for, for my glory. And so uh, look again in chapter 2 verse 16. Chapter 2 verse 16 he says, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Look again at chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. Revelation chapter 2, 22 and 23. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches the mind and the heart, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty serious Jesus to me. And so He is revealing Himself in a way to the churches that has not yet been, been really seen in this way. But He is a serious Savior. That means for us to be in battle with our flesh, to follow Him by faith, to trust in Him with all of our hearts. And that means that our lives are going to be moving toward Him if your faith is genuine. Uh, one last one, chapter 3, verse 3, Revelation 3, verse 3. Look what it says. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If not, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief 
and you will not know at what hour I will come. What's them last two words? Against you. So, one of the goals that we want to see as we get into studying our first church this morning is we want to see that Jesus is serious about His true church being warriors against sin and loving Him for who He is. He's serious about us making Him our greatest treasure. He is above everything else in this world and there is nothing that can compare to Him. Isaiah 41 said, To what will you liken me? To what will you compare me with? And so he is serious about him being our greatest treasure and he is serious about us fighting sin and him putting us in the battle with our sin. The other goal that we want to focus on this morning is that we would be blessed. In Revelation 1, verse 3, look at what it said. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and blessed are those who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And so one of the things that we see here is that He is giving us a word in this book that if we will heed it, if we will listen to it, if we will keep it, then He is promising us a blessing. To get a better understanding of that blessing, go with me to Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Um, I'm not going to turn there myself, but... One of the things that it's talking about in Psalm chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 is that we are called to walk in a different way than the world. We don't walk in the path of uh, sinners or in the counsel of sinners. We don't stand in the way of sinners. We don't sit in the seat of the scornful. But instead, we delight in the law of the Lord. We find our delight in His law and in and, and, and His Word and we... We meditate on it day and night. And He promises us in Revelation chapter 1, I think it's verse 4, He promises us that when we do this, that we will be like the tree that is planted by the waters. It brings forth its fruit in season. It's strong and it is steady. And we will be like the tree by the waters that leaf, its leaf never withers, but it prospers in everything that it does. And so ultimately, he means that we are going to have godly strength. We're going to produce fruit for God. We're going to prosper in all of our godly endeavors when we read this book and when we keep the words of this book. And you're going to see that you will have an opportunity to be blessed by the words of this book by the time we get through with this lesson this morning. Those are your two goals. And so I'm praying this morning that you're ready to see Jesus in a way that maybe you've not yet seen Him. And I'm praying that you're ready to be blessed by what He has to tell you in this Word, but only if you hear it and only if you keep it. So let's get into the outline very quickly. quickly. Revelation 1, verse 19. This is the outline for all of Revelation. Chapter 1 verse 19 says, Write therefore the things that you have seen. And so here's what he's wrote. The first section is about these are the things that you have seen. And chapter 1 is about the vision of the glorified Lord. 
It's about seeing Christ in a way that we have yet to see Him. We see Him, He gives John a vision of Jesus walking through lampstands. And He tells us that these lampstands represent the churches. And He says that He has these seven stars in His right hand. And that these stars represent the messengers of this church. And He shows us a Jesus with a, with a long robe and, and a girdle around Him. And, and He shows Jesus in long flowing white hair with a, that's white as snow. And so we see Jesus in His kingly role in the church, in His priestly role in the church. And we see Jesus in infinite wisdom walking through the churches. And we see Jesus with His feet crushing uh, with, his, uh, with His enemy crushing feet, those feet that were bronze and like, uh, like have been refined in a refiner's fire. And then we see Jesus with eyes like blazing fire. In other words, He can see, He has such deep insight that He can see everything about everyone. When He walks through this church this morning, even though He is in spirit, there is nothing that you have that's hidden from Him. You may fool me, you may fool Nick, or I may fool you. But let me tell you who you will not fool this morning. You will not fool the one who's walking through the churches and whom you belong to this morning. And so we see Jesus, and in, in this is what we get in the first, first chapters. These are the things that John has seen. But then in verse 19 again, he says, I want you to write those things that are. And so we're fixing to get into from chapters 2 to chapter 4 to the end of chapter 3. So chapter 2 and 3, you have the things that are. These are the things that are currently taking place and you see the condition of the churches. And then the last part of the outline says, and those things that are to take place after this. And so from Revelations chapter 4 all the way to Revelations chapter 22, you have the last part of the outline and that is the things that must take place after this present age, after this church age, if you will. And so this morning what I want to be able to do is get into the second part. The, two weeks ago we covered the first part, the things that John saw the vision of the glorified Jesus Christ. This week we are going to get into the condition of the churches. We're going to get into what Jesus sees as He walks through these churches, as He walks through these lampstands, and as He holds these messengers of the churches in His hand, what He sees when He walks through these different churches. Now you remember, He only evaluated seven churches in Asia. However, there were... Many more churches in Asia than just seven. But what we find out is that this is an apocalyptic book. This is a, a book that reveals, it's a picture book if you will. And so these seven churches actually represent actual churches. These are actual churches that were there. But these seven churches are representative of every church in the church age. And so in one way or another, because the number seven represents completeness... In one way or another, when we cover each one of these churches, you are going to see something that applies to every church that has ever been since Jesus started it and that ever will be until the time that Jesus comes back to take it home. And so the first church we look at this morning is the condition of the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. Let's read together Revelation chapter 2 verse 1 through 7. If you have the means and you're able... Y'all stand as we read this together. 
Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works. I know your toil, and I know your patient endurance. I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have... You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You can be seated. G, would you pray for us, please? Amen. Amen. In Revelations chapter 2, verse 1, we have um, the Apostle John that starts out telling us that this is to the messenger or the angel of the church of Ephesus. And so ultimately what you have here is this. You have a word that could mean a literal angel, or it could mean the messenger or an elder or the teacher, the teaching pastor of the church possibly. But I want you to know that I believe that he's talking about the messenger as a human being of some kind to this church. The, church, the messenger that is going to deliver this message to the church. reason I say that is because the exact same word in which we get angel here or some translated messenger, the exact same word we find in the book of Luke whenever it's addressing John the Baptist. He is the messenger that went before Christ in the wilderness. I believe the word is pronounced um, angelos or something like that. That's where we get angel from. But it simply means a messenger, basically a messenger of God. And so there were times that the messengers of God were literal angels. And there were times that the messengers of God were men. We also see in the book of, um, I think it's Luke chapter 9, I believe it is. We also see that Jesus sends messengers, the same exact word, into a village of Samaria before Him. He sends them ahead of Him to prepare a place for Him. And so again, we see that word used as in human beings that have been sent by God to declare a message before Him. 
We also see this word in the book of James when James is addressing uh, the faith of Rahab the prostitute and how her faith had works and that's what proved it to be genuine. And he said that Rahab proved her faith to be genuine by the fact that she received the messengers or the two spies that came in to spy out Jericho. She received them by faith. And so what we have here is a word that sometimes is used in the, for, the, for the term of a literal angel. Sometimes it is used for the term of a messenger that God sends in human form. I, the reason I tend to lean toward the fact that this would be the pastor of the church or a, a, a messenger that is going to deliver this to the church, the reason I lean toward that is simply because God has in the church age, yes, we had Gabriel that went to Mary, we had angels that went to Abraham and gave messages, but in the church age, God has always delivered to His church the message through human beings. And so I truly believe that this is speaking to the person that God has put over the church for the purpose of delivering this message to the church. He told us that we are under-shepherds of this church, that... Uh, that we are to care for the flock of God that He has put in our care. And so ultimately I believe this is a letter that is written to this messenger that is going to stand before this church and is going to declare this Word of God. On that same token, it could be that it is a literal angel. We don't know. It could be and it's possible that it is. But either way, the point of it is this. Jesus Christ has sent a letter to be delivered to His people. And it will be delivered to both the pastor of this church and the church. And He means for all of them to hear it so that we can see Him in a way that we maybe not, don't see Him and that we can be blessed by hearing this word and by keeping this word. So this is a message to the church that is at Ephesus. This is also a message from Jesus Christ. We know that because of the characteristics at the beginning of every church he addresses line up with part of the vision that you saw in chapter 1. And so he starts out, he says, These are the words... These are the words of the one that holds the seven messengers in his right hand, or the seven stars. And these are the words of the one that walks among the seven golden lampstands, or the churches. And so we know that these are the words of Jesus Christ himself as he walks among these churches. And now we get to the part where Jesus is saying, Here are the results of my evaluation. Wells Baptist Church, here is the results of the evaluation that Jesus said, this is what I see when I walk through the churches. To him who has ears, let him hear it. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. And so even though this goes to the church of Ephesus, these are the words of Jesus Christ as what he sees when he walks through this church and he evaluates it. And so these are the results of his inspection. Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse 2. These are the results. The first thing, if you're keeping notes this morning, the first thing that he sees is some things to commend a church for. He sees some things that are wrong. 
But he's not just walking through saying, these are all the things you have wrong. Now listen to me closely, church, because I could take a lesson, and I, I am taking a lesson from this. <laughs> we could take a lot of lesson from Jesus in this. How many of us are so quick to walk through someone else's life and the only thing we can see are the things that they don't get right? But Jesus don't start there. He starts and He says, Let me show you the things that you have going for you. Let me show you the things that I can commend you on. Now the reason this is important, because in a few weeks you're going to get to a church that is literally having a woman teacher in the church that is leading people into utter sexual immorality. In the church. She's teaching this and approving this and people are following her. And yet Jesus doesn't start to let her off with that. He starts off with a commendation. And then He says, but I have this against you. And so I say again this morning, I think that we could definitely take a lesson out of this that, that um, yes, everybody don't get it right. You know, you, you want to know one of the biggest struggles I have as a preacher? Going back and listening to one of my earlier messages. You ever done that, Nick? I go back and I try to sit down and I listen to messages or I read notes on messages that I preached 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I sit down and I read those notes and I go, what in the world were you thinking? Did you even know the Bible existed when you preached this message? I mean, it was just that bad sometimes. And, and what's so funny about it, Nick, is back then... I thought I had it figured out. And so the point being is that we could all take a lesson out of that book and understand that we are all works in progress. And yet Jesus still is able to look at us even when you got a woman teacher in your church that is leading people into sexual immorality. Do you know how much that blows my mind to hear Jesus say at the beginning, let me tell you what you have right. Do you know what I would do as the preacher of this church if that's what we were dealing with here? And so, I really, I, I'm telling you, that just, that just stuck in my mind and, and Jesus just really blessed me with that message right there. And so I pray, and now listen, I'm not saying that we tolerate it. Jesus is not saying that He's going to tolerate bad teaching that he's going to tolerate sinful actions. No, just the opposite. But he is coming on the scene and saying, listen, you got some things right. You got some things that you got going for you. But we need to work on this. And I think that all of us could learn to humble ourselves enough to go, I ain't got it all figured out yet myself. And yet, he's still working with me. He's still bringing me to where he means for me to be. And that's the same way we are to be with each other. And so that, that's the message that I really took from this. But the first we get is the commendation. Look what he says. He says, I know your works. When I walk through here and I look at what I see in this church, I know your works. And then he lays it out in three different ways. He said, your works look like this. You have toil 
That word means to, to work with sweat. It means hard labor to the point of exhaustion. Listen, this church of Ephesus was not a church that you could come in and sit on the back row or even the front row and do nothing. He looked at this church and he said, I see your work. I see you working for the kingdom of God. I see you investing in the kingdom of God. I see your labor and your toil. I see your patient endurance. Literally, I see that you are persistent and you are steady under hardship. It's not easy to do this. And yet you are persistent, you are steady. He says, I see that you cannot bear with those who are evil. In other words, you don't tolerate sin. You understand that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Family members, we could take a lesson from this. We have become a culture that we tolerate sin as long as the culture accepts it. And we could take a lesson to understand that the reason why America keeps going in the direction it's going is because we, the church, have allowed a little leaven to leaven the whole lump. As mothers and fathers in our household, the reason why your, your family is going to keep going from this to this to this and worse and accepting more and more is because you allow a little leaven to leaven the whole lump. And it don't get better, it gets worse. And so this was a church of people that they did not tolerate sin. They, they dealt with sin, whatever it was. This was a church that was doctrinally sound. He says, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. Now I'm not going to go through the lesson this morning, but I could take you back to 1 Corinthians 15, Romans chapter 1, Acts chapter 19 and 20. I could take you many places in the Bible and prove to you that today there are no more apostles. So a person that labels themselves apostle has given themselves a title that they don't understand what it means. But he says here that you were so sound in your doctrine that when someone came in claiming this status, you tested them because in this time there were still apostles left, the apostle John being one of them, and they came in and claimed that they were apostles. You tested them and found out they wasn't. And so we have a church here that is doctrinally sound. They hate sin. They won't bear with it. They won't tolerate it. They labor hard to the point of exhaustion and they endure patiently under these hardships that they are facing. This is a beautiful church. Basically, you could say this. They keep on keeping on and they do it for the right motivation. Look what it says next. He says, You test those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and you're bearing up for my name's sake. Listen, they have a love for Jesus here. This is important to remember because I believe a lot of us focus on what they have wrong as saying they don't love Jesus like they should, which a part of that is true. But here they're doing it for the name of the Lord Jesus. They have this right motivation. And not only that, they have not grown weary doing it. You know, I remember a time in our life, um, I may have shared this story with you before, but uh, me and my wife, we were just tired. We were just weary. 
I don't know why. We really wasn't doing much. But, but you know how it is. Sometimes we think that we do more than we actually do. Can I get an amen from somebody on that? Sometimes we think we do more than we actually do, and we think we're tired than what we really are. And ultimately, we decided we were going to go visit a big church in Nashville one, one uh, Sunday morning. And we pulled up in this parking lot that had like, um, what's some people on the runway that's doing this number right here? With, we pulled up in the parking lot, and that's the way we were directed to our parking places, and they brought us right up there to the visitor parking. And then we went in and went down the escalator by the McDonald's and the coffee bar in the church. And we went by the gymnasium that the weight sets and everything in it and the nursery that was bigger than our church. Um, and we walked by that and we ended up going up another escalator and into this big sanctuary where we were seated and the band came out with the trumpets and they played. And Chastity said, made the statement, and I'm not putting her down because I thought the same thing, okay? She said, you know... This is a church that we could come into and come in and sit down in our pew, listen, worship, listen to the message, get up and go home, and nobody would ever know. And we thought that. And I remember, I felt the same thing, but I remember I told her, I said, no, we can't. We can't. That's not what we do. We serve the Lord Jesus Christ and we are serious about our service to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what we do. And so what I see here is I see a church that you can't just come in and sit down and then get up and after your worship is on and you've heard your sermon and go home and then you just come back and do it all over again next week and that's your routine. Wrong. This church was a working church. This church was a laboring church, a toiling church, a church that was laboring in both evangelism, laboring in the Word, laboring in doctrine, learning the teachings of Jesus Christ, and they were giving their life to Christ. Guys, this was a strong church, and I want you to understand why. Ephesus, it was started likely by Aquila and Priscilla. The Apostle Paul actually taught them for three years and trained the elders of the church himself. He trained the elders of this church. Timothy was the teaching pastor that Paul left behind after Paul left. Alright, so you start out Aquila and Priscilla. That's pretty good. You also have Apollos who was very eloquent in the Old Testament that is in this church and teaching in this church. You have the Apostle Paul training the elders of this church. You have Timothy being the teaching pastor of this church. You have the Apostle Paul writing them doctrinal letters and answering all of their questions in this church. You have the Apostle John who was an elder at the church of Ephesus throughout his dying years. So let me put it to you like this. This church had on its staff the guys who wrote the Bible. Kind of makes me look at our staff and think we're a little weak. They had on their staff the guys who wrote the Bible. This was a solid church. And yet, they didn't have it all the way right. You can have the best pastor. You can have the best teachers. You can have the best preachers. You can have the best singers. You can have the best of the best of the best of the best. And yet you as an individual still not have it right.
Because the church is not made up of a pastor or a teacher. The church is made up of individuals. When Paul left the elders of Ephesus, he said in Acts chapter 20, verse 20, he said, uh, actually in verse 27, I'll skip verse 20, but in verse 27 he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Literally, he was meeting with the elders of Ephesus and he told them, for three years now I have taught you and I have not left anything out. This church had everything that it possibly could have had to be successful and make it. And they had a lot of things going for them. But next in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, we have the condemnation. The first thing was the commendation. The second thing is the condemnation. Here we come with where Jesus gives some constructive criticism. In verse 4, I read it again. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You don't love like you used to love. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You know, there are two main interpretations that people take from this. One says that this first love was the love that was directed toward Jesus Christ Himself. And it's now waning away. The other interpretation says that this first love was the love that the members of the church had toward one another. And that that love was now waning away. They had everything else right. They loved the Lord Jesus and they did all of these things for Him. But what if I speak with the tongues of angels and have not love? I am nothing. What if I give my body to be burned and give all that I have to the poor but have not love? I have nothing. And so one of these two interpretations is correct. I believe they both can be. You know why? Because love for Jesus and love for one another are tied together at the hip. Matter of fact, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 11, 1 John chapter 4, he tells us that if you don't have love for your brother then you don't have love for God. And so we have to understand that the nature of God, if it is truly in us, then it is going to come out of us in expressions and actions of love toward others. And so that's the approach that I want to take this morning. You know, we talk a lot about the honeymoon phase. Anybody of y'all ever experienced the honeymoon phase? Y'all remember that phase? Now listen, this is more than a short period of time to get away just to celebrate the marriage. A lot of people think that's the honeymoon. Now, the honeymoon is the time to where the couple takes to get to know each other. It's that phase to where they, uh, they will bend over backwards to avoid conflict with each other. <clears throat> you know, when me and my wife were first together, I remember... Um, I couldn't even get pulled up in the driveway at home. She was living with her grandmother at the time while they were building the house. And my mom and dad's house was just right down the road. And I had a loud truck. I was a country boy. I had a loud truck. And she could hear me when I pulled up into my driveway after I left her and I got parked. And so she would give me time to get in the house. And I just left her. And what did she do? Y'all don't know what that is, but... She would call. 
And then she would sit there and we would talk for another hour, two hours. And then she would say, you hang up. <laughs> and then I would say, no, you hang up. <laughs> and this would go on back and forth for a pretty good little while. Can I get a witness? <laughs> this would go back and forth for a pretty good little while. And it was during that honeymoon phase. But then by the time we actually got married, our honeymoon phase, I had decided needed to come to an end. And so the first thing I do when we walk into our cabin in Gatlinburg in our honeymoon is I grab her and I hold her down in a chair and I pass a little gas. Just a little. And I hold her there as long as I can. Can I get a witness, anybody? <clears throat> Nobody else does that but me. <clears throat> the point being, <laughs> there is a point to this. Yeah. <laughs> the point being, I don't even know what the point is. <laughs> there is a point, I promise. The po yeah, there you go. No more honeymoon. Thank you. So anyway, here's the point. Now we have reached a stage in our relationship that I ain't holding nothing back. And now we've reached a point that she knows who I am and I know who she is. And so here we are. And so now when that becomes happening, we're no longer holding back our craziness anymore. We're no longer trying to act like we're this perfect person, but now we slowly but surely begin to reveal our craziness. Amen? And so now we're no longer bending over backwards to try to avoid conflict, but now sometimes I'm looking for conflict. And now sometimes we just find something to argue about. And so the honeymoon phase is a beautiful thing in the church too because do you remember when you first came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and you were in the honeymoon phase? And you remember when you first became part of the church and you were in the honeymoon phase? But then do you remember when you truly began to get to know each other? And all of a sudden you learned, you know, those guys ain't perfect. You know, those guys ain't got it all figured out. You know, those guys have flaws. And those guys are messed up. And some of those people are just crazy. And when the honeymoon phases, all of a sudden that love feeling that we get, that we had, all of a sudden that love feeling that we had begins to also go away with it, right? And so what we see happening here is that the first love that they had for both the Lord Jesus Christ and the church and for the members of it has now begun to get a little old. And now we're recognizing each other as sinners. And now here we go. We're leaving the honeymoon phase and our first love is no longer what it used to be. And so we see this happening right here. You know, this is the reason why much of the New Testament is about teaching us to strive to maintain unity. It's about teaching us to be long-suffering. It's about teaching us to be gentle. It's about teaching us to be kind. It's about teaching us to be forgiving. It's about teaching us to be forbearing with one another. Any of those things ring a bell to you? The reason why He has to teach us that is because those are the works that it takes for us to maintain this first love. It's not maintained because that loving feeling stays over us the whole time. 
now the real work and the action of love has to come in. Because let me tell you something, love is not a feeling. Is a feeling attached to love? Absolutely. But love is not defined by saying it's something that I feel. Love is an action that I do toward others. It's a verb. It's an action word. You know, I remember <clears throat> when um, Lauren Bishop came into this church, and I don't think Lauren's here this morning. <clears throat> Lauren came into this church, and I was holding a job fair. We were looking for laborers. You remember? We were looking for laborers for certain roles in the church. And I remember we were showing different places and opportunities for people to serve. I'd never met Lauren Bishop before, but she was here. And before that thing was over with, she came to me and she had signed up for about 10 of those jobs. And I remember looking at that going, first off, who is Lauren Bishop? And second off, what in the world is she thinking? And what it was is that she had such a desire to serve Christ that it manifested itself in a desire to serve the church exactly the way that it should have. And so one of the things that I love when I see this first love is that their love for Jesus is so strong that it bleeds over in the love they have for one another. I, I remember when Sandra Grinsberg first started coming to this church and, um, and Sandra came to me and she said, I just want to do something. And I didn't really know Sandra that well then. I didn't really know her well enough to actually decide where I felt like that she could serve yet, so I needed a little bit more time. But I remember her, her saying, well, I can do this, or I can do this, or I can do this. And I remember saying, well, just slow down a little bit. Let's, let's just kind of wait and let's, let's see where you fit and where you can end up at. And then she came back to me and she said, I want to do something for the homeless. And she said, I want to do something for... And the point being is that she had such a desire and a love in her for the Lord Jesus Christ that it came out that she wanted to serve the people of God. Amen. And if anything, I had to put a halter on them and pull back the reins and go, hold on, let's just wait until we actually figure out who you are first. And then let's get you in a place. And then here recently she has stepped up and decided, hey, we're going to do Secret Sister. And she just jumped up and started this ministry because in her heart she just wants to serve. And so one of the things that I see in this is that one of the works of the first love that we, we miss is whenever we, the, the love for Jesus begins to wane a little bit and then the love for His people is attached to that and all of a sudden we get back to selfishness and what I want to do and where I want to be and I don't even want to come to Bible study anymore and I don't even want to come to prayer meeting anymore and I don't want to teach anymore. And I don't want to minister anymore. I just want to come in and sit down in my pew and get my worship on and go home. You are who I'm talking to this morning. Let me say that again. You are who I'm talking to this morning. Your first love has been abandoned. And it is no more. But it don't have to stay that way. <clears throat> Jerome was a church father in the 4th century. And listen to what he wrote concerning love for others. This is a quote from Jerome, 4th century church father. He said, The blessed John the Apostle lived in Ephesus until an extreme old age. His disciples could barely carry him to church, and he could not muster the voice to speak many words. During individual gatherings, he usually said nothing but this, Little children, love one another. And that's all he would say. 
The disciples and brothers and attendants got annoyed at this because they always heard the same words. And finally they said to John, Teacher, why do you always say this? And he replied with a line worthy of John. He said, Because it's the Lord's commandment, and if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. Little children love one another. If it alone is kept, it is sufficient. Listen, what's the remedy? Go with me to verse 5. I've got to speed this up. Y'all don't give me enough time. <clears throat> verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Here are three steps. I'll go through them quickly. Here's what you do if you have walked away from your first love and you don't know how to get it back. First thing you do, remember. Remember. Go back to the place when He was more to be desired than anything else in this world because that's not where He is right now in your life. Right now, everything else is to be desired. He's on your back burner. You understand that? He's on your back burner. In other words, if everything else is done and I don't have anything else to do, anywhere else to go, anybody else to please, then now I will give Jesus what I have left. You think He's going to accept that? No, He's not. Remember, go back to the place when He was more to be desired than anything, back when you chased Him with everything you had. Go back to that place. Remember it. And the next thing, repent. Turn around. Don't stay where you are. But then he mows on to the last thing. He says in verse 5, And do the works you did at first. Here's the last thing. Do the works that you did at first. Remember, this is not a feeling. This is action that you do toward others. And he says here, do the first works. I want to read a quote. And this is all I've got left. Listen to this quote from John MacArthur. He said, you, you see people who come to Christ, they fall in love with Christ, and they want to serve and they want to tell everybody about Christ. Right? You've seen those people, right? They want to teach, they want to pass on what they know, they want to sing, they want to pray, they want to learn. Those are the first things. Go back to that. He said, if you once taught, but you don't teach anymore, why don't you go back to that? He said, if you once prayed with folks, but you don't pray anymore, pray with folks anymore, why don't you go back to that? If you used to gather with God's people every chance you get, but you don't anymore, why don't you go back to that? If you always went to Bible study and you were always a part of the fellowship group, but you don't do that anymore, he said, these are the evidences of a loss of the first love. So remember how it was before. Repent. And do the first works of love toward one another. And then finally we have the warning. In verse 5, the second part. If not, if you don't want to do that, if you just want to stay where you are, if you're content and you're happy, here's the words of him who holds the seven messengers in his right hand, and the one that walks among the churches. Here's what he says. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place 
unless you repent. Now you remember something. Churches are not made up of pastors and teachers. They're made up of individuals. If you don't want your lampstand removed, then my advice to you would be to listen to what he says and go back to doing the works of the first love. Remember that time when he was more to be desired than anything else and go back. Go back and start doing the works that you once did when you first came to know Him as your Lord and Savior. And then he says this, he says, if not, I'll come to you. Now listen, some of you are saying right now, well, that's awesome, I'm ready for Him to come. Not like this, you're not. Not like this. That's not the coming that he's talking about right here. And so if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Did you know that there is no church in Ephesus today? Did you know that it wasn't one very long after this? He did exactly what he promised. And listen, they were a hard-working church. They were a doctrinally sound church. They had it all together, guys. But they didn't have the first love and the works that go along with it. Do you hear me? Guys, we can work so hard and we can do so much and it means nothing if we don't have love. So go back. Do the first works. Go back to that place. This, this is about Him being our greatest treasure and His love being our greatest reward. And then the, the fifth thing, this, this really is the last, I said last a minute ago. This is my fourth closing, okay? Fifth, verse 7 and 8, this is it. The promise or the invitation and the promise. Here's the invitation, guys. He who has an ear, let him hear. Anybody in here got ears? Does this apply to you? If you have ears this morning, he says, why don't you hear it? If you have ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. Churches. And here's the promise. To the one who conquers. In other words, to the one that proves that his faith was actually genuine. To the one that proves that Jesus truly was that treasure hidden in the field that when he found it, he buried it and he went and he sold everything he owned because there was nothing more important than buying that treasure. That's genuine faith. To him who conquers and proves that his faith in Christ was genuine. Listen to what he says. I will grant him to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So I close with this question. Have you abandoned the first love? Have you abandoned it? If you have, he gives you a loving warning this morning. Not a condemning warning, a loving warning that you have the opportunity to make Him your first love again. And if you do it, you will prove to have genuine faith and you will have eternal life when you eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. That's His promise.